Welcome back to my podcast. Today, we are listening to Chapter 2 of the Condensed Version of Sarah Whitman by Diane Pearson. If you missed Chapter 1, it is available for download. Please subscribe to get updates on when new chapters are released. Let's get reading. Chapter 2 She made up her mind that if she saw him again, the first thing she would ask would be his name. But when the time came, she was so agitated that she forgot everything but the need to get him away from the school gates as quickly as possible. She had come out of the staff room just in time to coincide with Miss Bennett and in silence they had walked together to the staff entrance. But when she followed Miss Bennett out into the yard with a sinking heart, she realized the figure waiting for her by the railings. Sorry, she recognized the figure. I have told you about this before, Miss Whitman, said Miss Bennett stonily. I'm very sorry, Miss Bennett. I will see that it does not happen again. She hurried to the gate. I told you not to wait for me here, she whispered fiercely. That's the headmistress. She took hold of his arm and tried to push him away along the road. Stubbornly, he refused to be hurried. A typical example of upper-class autocracy, he said airily. You have allowed yourself to be victimized. You should fight for your rights. Oh, don't talk rubbish. She hadn't been in his company a minute, and already she was annoyed. There are too many school teachers and not enough vacancies. She had begun to hope that perhaps her dismissal wasn't as imminent as she had feared. Five weeks had elapsed since this rashing with no letter of dismissal, so she was trying hard not to antagonize Miss Bennett any further. You are a typical cog in a capitalist society, he answered. A bourgeois oppressor of the poor who is in turn oppressed by a tyrannical headmistress. And what do you do for a living? She retorted. That's what I'd like to know. I'm a railway clerk, he said. Well, I'm not always going to be one. One day, I'm going to lead the people into a perfect society. Stuff, said Sarah. You're a rude young railway clerk, and one day you'll be a rude old railway clerk. What do you ever do about leading the people into a perfect society? His brown eyes studied her seriously. I do a lot. I'm a delegate for the branch of my branch of the union, organizing our part in the big strike for the whole of this area. That's what I was doing at the Alexander's. A national strike. It's coming, you know. But that's wicked. Living and working in a district where nearly everyone was poor, where many were unemployed, she still had never had a personal encounter with a Bolshevik. He waved his arms. What's wicked about trying to stop a miner's pay from being cut? What's wicked about that, eh? 
She expected him to say something silly about grinding the faces of the poor. The fact that he came out with a reality that a lot of people were feeling bad about made her a little uncertain how to argue. It's the way you're trying to stop it, she said earnestly. Making everyone stop work won't solve anything. So you tell me a better way, he shouted. To be truthful, she didn't know very much about the miners. They can settle it by discussion, she said feebly. They've been discussing for five years. And what has happened? I don't know, she flared back at him, tired of being made to feel stupid. All I know is that sensible, God-fearing people wouldn't start strikes just because of a lot of Bolshevik talk. That's a stupid bourgeois thing to say. Only middle-class people like you talk about God. Believing in God is ignorant suspicion. He had gone too far. For Sarah, with her strict, nonconformist background, this was more than blasphemy. It was a negation of everything in her life, of her pa, of all the others in the village, and of her own achievements, brought about by people who believed in God and therefore wanted to help her. I'm sorry, she said quietly. I have to go now. Goodbye. The animation left him. She had closed herself away behind English politeness. Could I see you? I mean, I mean, I would like to talk to you again. I'm sorry, she said, but we don't really believe in the same things, do we? She walked away and left him. She still didn't know his name. But now it didn't matter, because she wouldn't be seeing him anymore. His name was David Barron. In the old country, it had been Baranowitz, and his parents hadn't intended to change it. They were proud of being Baranowitz, because in the old country, it was a much-respected name. But when David's father had come to England as an escape from the pogroms of the Tsarist regime, the English registrar had merely entered Baron on the form, because that was the nearest English sound. Two days later, in January 1900, David had been born, the first of the Baron's British children, the one most dear to their hearts. To his beloved David, old Jacob Baranowitz had imparted his sense of a new freedom, his belief that in England anything could be done if one desired it strongly enough. He could have trained the boy to be a shoemaker, like himself. There was a good living in the trade, but he wanted to prove that his family could now work any kind of trade. He would say to his friends, My son, he has an important responsible position, a post on the railway, like an Englishman. Can you see that in the old country? 
David had studied at evening classes and absorbed all kinds of ideas that were beyond his father. And then one day, Jacob found that the boy had absorbed the idea of freedom to the exclusion of everything else, even God and the Jewish law. His son was a godless rebel. David had denounced God to Sarah almost as a mark of defiance, knowing it would shock and offend her. He despised her for her ignorance and for her assumption that what she believed was right. But Sarah's serenity, her strength that came from the soil, her face, her secret smile, had captured his imagination. She was so English. Her rejection wounded him deeply. She's nothing, he muttered. He stomped unhappily along the pavement. Arrogant and a snob, she's nothing. Just an ignorant bourgeois nothing. But he knew in his heart that it wasn't true. He saw Sarah again in the early days of the general strike. He hadn't really felt happy since the last time he'd seen her, but he thought that, for the present, he had no right to be happy. He was busy organizing a social revolution. Unfortunately, this particular revolution was proving more difficult to organize than he had expected. His strike was running beautifully, but in other parts of the country, things weren't stopping as efficiently as they should have. He was on his way to do picket duty at the station when he saw Sarah, happy and excited, riding on the back of a red motorcycle. When it pulled into the curb ahead of him, she climbed down, straightened her hat, and waved, laughing at the cheerful young man in front as the cycle roared away. David hurried up to her. What were you doing on that bike? He burst out. This isn't your way home. Sarah looked sheepish. I know, but I may never get a chance to ride on a motor bicycle again. And today everybody is giving everyone else rides. It's quite respectable because of the strike. David wished he could afford to buy a motorcycle and go roaring down the road with Sarah on the back because he wished it so very much, he said stuffily. The strike is a serious business, you know. Too many people are treating it as fun. I know. She was a little ashamed. Here he was, wearing an armband and looking very responsible. But then she remembered the way he had spoken about God. Goodbye, she said swiftly and began to walk away. Sarah, she stopped but didn't look at him. Please, can I see you again? Perhaps we don't believe in the same things, but that's what's interesting about people, the way we're all different. He had struck the right note. Sarah could not resist anything different. You are very different, she said reluctantly. I never met anyone like you before. All right, I'll see you again, but not outside the school, at the elephant, this time next week. And then she remembered something.
but I don't know your name. David. David Barron. David Barron. It sounded nice the way she said it. Goodbye, then. He watched her walk away, tall, well-built, and walking awkwardly because she knew he was looking at her. She seemed to carry a bright warmth with her. Everyone around her looked dull and ordinary. When she had disappeared, he began to run down the old Kent Road, dodging in and out of the masses of people. Suddenly, everything was wonderful again. If necessary, he would even go to Wales and run their strike for them. At Willow Walk Station, the other pickets were already on duty and some students were in their shunting yard messing about ineffectually with the engines. Come on, lads, he said excitedly, up to the bridge over the line. He felt so happy, he had to stop himself from laughing out loud as he grabbed several lumps of coal from the siding and raced up over the bridge. Scabs! Black legs, he shouted joyfully to the students below and threw coal down on their heads. There was a family meeting that night in Ma Dance's room, and Sarah attended, squeezed in between two oversized dances by the door. Me and Dad have decided that the family must stand by in the country like we did in the war, wheezed Ma. Ain't that right, Pa? Pa, in a collarless shirt with a brass stud at the front, nodded heartily. Tain't that we don't feel sorry for the miners. I've said to your ma many times those poor kids in Wales ought to come down here and have one of your good feeds. That's what they need. Haven't I said that lots of times? You have, Pa, you have. But feeding the poor little devils is one thing. Threatening to murder the king and queen is another. This was too much, even for the dances. Charlie looked bothered. Who said anything about murdering the king and queen? He said. That's what they did in Russia. And when things like strikes start happening here, it's time the family put a stop to it. There was mumbled assent in the room, and Ma went on. All you boys what are not working at the moment, you get up to Whitehall tomorrow and sign on for doing your bit for the country. That's what we think is right, don't we? There was an affable pause, a complacent sense of everyone knowing they were right. Sarah felt a sudden urge to annoy them. What about the miners? She was horrified as soon as she had spoken when they all turned and stared at her. Ma breathed heavily. We all know it ain't easy when the money stops coming in, but striking ain't the way to settle things. They ought to have a good talk with Mr. Baldwin. But they've been talking for five years and nothing's happened. Then she remembered where she had heard these words. That wretched David Barron had made her say something stupid in front of the family. Ma stared at her. Where'd you get these Russian ideas, then? I, I was just talking to someone, and Charlie was watching her now, with hurt reproach on his face. 
Remembering her promise to meet David, she was aware of a double disloyalty to the family ideals and to Charlie. You want to go against the family? asked Ma. No, of course not. Right, then let's hear no more nonsense. It's all decided. The serious business was over and Ma relaxed. Let those kids come up, Maxie. I got some umbugs for me. It was a strange week that followed. A warm week of long, soft, early summer evenings. London was packed with strikers, people forced to walk, strollers out to see the fun. Sometimes the streets were pleasant to walk in, at other times not. The buses were stoned or pelted with eggs and refuse, and a bunch of gay young things acting as special constables received the contents of some white chapel chamber pots on their heads. After a determined effort in Hall to get a train service working again, trains were turned over and burned. In Leeds, an angry crowd gathered round buses used to take wool workers to their factories, and a union leader pulled a revolver on the depot inspector. The day before Sarah was to meet David, rumors began to circulate that the strike would soon be over. Somehow, things had become a little half-hearted. Men were drifting back to work and discussions were reinstated. When she met David in the crowds at the Elephant, she was shocked to see how ill he looked. Are you all right? she asked and was embarrassed when his eyes filled with tears. It's off, he choked. We lost all for nothing. All that working and planning to help the miners. The first time people did something for someone else without thinking what they were going to get out of it. Then it's all been for nothing. She pushed her hand beneath his arm, trying to comfort him with physical contact. Come on, she said gently. Let's get away from the crowd. They walked on down the old Kent Road but instead of fewer people, they found more, and finally, they were unable to move at all, except in the direction everyone else was moving. A lorry, guarded by policemen, appeared from the direction of the docks. Moving carefully, right in the middle of the road between the tram lines, a brick flew over Sarah's head and smashed into the lorry. We'd better try and get out of here, David said urgently. Sarah tried to move, but they were hemmed in, trapped by the surging crowd. Sarah's hat was knocked away from her head and lost. She felt David's arm wrenched away, and she turned to see him scrambling to his feet after having been thrown to the ground. David, she shouted. She began to claw her way through the crowd towards the shop doorway. A loud cracking noise broke through the shouting of the crowd, and she saw the window of the shoe shop spring into a myriad silver lines and fall in a shower of glass. Two men began to snatch shoes from the, the display, and the crowd milled faster, anxious to disperse before the police moved in. She had started to run with them in panic when David appeared in front of her, put his arms round her waist, and held her tightly against him. 
stand still, he said quietly, and look innocent. If you run, the police will be after you in seconds. There came almost immediately whistles blowing, pounding through the thinning crowd, straight past those who were standing still, following the people who had taken flight. A sensation of warm excitement welled in Sarah. David's face was only a few inches from her own. His arms were strong and warm and alive. A shiver ran over her as she looked into his face and saw what a beautiful mouth he had. Suddenly, he pushed her away into the doorway of a cobbler's next to the shoe shop. She, she saw two mounted police bearing down on them. As David tried to follow her into the doorway, a policeman's baton caught him on the side of his head. He lurched to one side. She saw his face change. She saw disappointment and angry frustration well up in his eyes to be centered on the policeman who had hit him. You bloody rosser, he shouted. He flung himself forward, clutched the bottom of the policeman's tunic, and pulled him down with all his strength. Then he jumped up and clutched the man around the neck. I'll get you down, you bloody rosser. Thinking about it later, Sarah decided that the blow hadn't even been meant for him, that he'd simply intercepted a clearing thrust of the baton, that he now clung to the policeman in such agonized fury that it took three constables to drag him off and away through the crowd. The last she saw of him, he was fighting every inch. She waited for twenty minutes, twenty minutes in which she became slowly aware of embarrassment, the dreadful spectacle she had just been a part of. Supposing Miss Bennett had seen David holding her close and then fighting a policeman on a horse. It was degrading, losing her hat and having to stand still by a broken window so the police would not arrest her for breaking it. David was dangerous. Already. He had brought her confusion and trouble. She felt an urgent need to go home to sit in Aunt Flory's kitchen drinking tea, nice and safe. When the crowd had thinned more, she hurried away. In an alley, one of the men who had taken the shoes from the shop was kneeling on the ground rummaging among them. All bloody left shoes, she heard him say. Not a single pair in the whole bloody window. It was as futile as everything else on this miserable day. The strike was over, but everything had to go on just the same. Empire Day was just over a week away. The flagpole must be erected in the playground, the Union Jack unfolded, the children selected to represent the different countries. Sarah, still trying to atone to the Alexanders for the Sammy incident, called Gertie out and told her she would be Britannia. Gertie's face brightened. No Alexander had ever been chosen for the Empire Day Parade or the Nativity Play. But on the morning of the great day, May 24th, Gertie arrived at school with swollen eyes and, as usual, no handkerchief. We can't have Britannia crying on Empire Day, Sarah said gently. You've got to lead the procession, dear. She took her quietly to a corner of the classroom. 
Now what's the trouble? It's me dad, Gertie sobbed. He's got the sack. He was one of the leaders in the strike. No one will take him on now. Sarah felt a laden weight descend on her heart. Was it the same old nightmare that hung over all of them? What about that Mr. Barron, she asked slowly. What's happened to him? He's got the sack, too, only he's in prison for three months, so he won't have the sack till he comes out. From the playground came the sound of class four leading the school out into the procession. Sobbing bitterly, Gertie put on her robe and helmet and picked up her trident. When they had all gone, Sarah remained kneeling on the floor. She put her head down on the nearest desk and let tears soak into the sleeve of her blue dress. She could hear them all outside, the chanting voices of children wearing drab costumes of made-over clothes and crepe paper. Today's the Empire's birthday, the 24th of May. Salute the flag, salute the king on glorious Empire Day. End of chapter.